Good evening. Um, if we could make a start, please. Um, well, first of all, um, welcome to you all, and thank you very much uh, to, uh, for coming uh, to tonight's public uh, lecture. Uh, my name is uh, Giles Atkinson, and I'll be uh, chairing uh, the lecture tonight, which is being um, uh, co-sponsored by the Department of Geography and Environment at LSE, and also LSE's uh, Grantham Research Institute on Climate Change and the uh, Environment. Uh, before I introduce our speaker, um, Paul Van Gardigan, uh, in, a, in one moment, um, let me just say a little bit about the running order uh, for tonight's um, uh, lecture. Um, Paul will uh, talk for uh, about 45 minutes to an upper limit, he tells me, of, uh, of, one, uh, of one hour. Um, we will finish by, uh, by, by 8 o'clock, and there will be, be plenty of time still for, uh, for, for, for questions. Paul's very keen on, uh, on, on that. Um, we are uh, recording uh, the, uh, the event, and hopefully uh, that recording will uh, be uh, available um, uh, very soon. Um, can I ask, please, as well, that uh, if you have your uh, mobiles with you, and of course you do, uh, you put those on uh, silent, um, and if you do want to uh, tweet during the, uh, during the lecture, then you will see the, um, uh, the hashtag LSE ecosystem there, that if you want to uh, link your, um, your tweets uh, to the uh, lecture, then um, that's the, the means uh, to, uh, to do that. Thank you very much. Um, let me then introduce our speaker um, for this evening. Uh, Professor Paul Van Garnigan uh, is uh, the UNESCO Chair in International Development at the University of Edinburgh. Um, he led there the establishment of the University of Edinburgh's um, International Development Centre, and he's written on many areas at the interface of the role of nature in the natural world in shaping development opportunities. Now, He's uh, performed a number of roles um, over, the, over the years. Uh, he's a member of the Scottish Government's uh, International Development Advisory Group. Uh, he's a member of the advisory group for DEFRA's uh, Darwin Initiative. But it's in his particular role as the director of the uh, Ecosystem Services for Policy Alleviation. It's easier to say the abbreviation uh, ESPA. The ESPA program uh, that he's going to uh, speak to us uh, about uh, tonight. Now, ESPA, um, for those of you who may not be familiar with it, is a research program that's run by the Natural Environment Research Council, the Economic and Social Research Council, and the Department for International Development, established in 2010. Have I got that, that right? Well, it's, it's, it, yeah, it, the main program started in 2010. But goes back further. Okay, roughly, <laughs> roughly right. And it has a number of uh, distinctive uh, features uh, that Paul has uh, shaped over those uh, those years, and which he will uh, talk to us uh, about. Uh, its interdisciplinarity uh, is certainly one element. Uh, so linking natural science and social science understandings of how ecosystems uh, influence uh, development. Uh, its cross-country um, uh, character of it, its research team that it's been building, um, and its emphasis on building capacity within developing countries uh, amongst uh, research scientists and, uh, and uh, other um, 
uh, people in these uh, research uh, teams in those uh, countries. And, and finally, uh, as well, the emphasis on uh, policy alleviation, not just the interest here from uh, an academic standpoint of understanding how ecosystem services uh, influence uh, poverty alleviation, but also uh, stress on the, um, the practical uh, impact as well in how we can, we can use these uh, projects really to, to support people's um, uh, livelihoods. Um, so as I mentioned, Paul will uh, talk for uh, 45 minutes to, uh, to an hour, uh, and then we will have uh, time for uh, questions. So please uh, do join me uh, in saying a um, big welcome uh, to uh, Paul Van Gardigan. Thank you. Okay, thanks, thanks Giles. It's really good to be here. And one of the, the greatest things about the ESPA program is actually being able to share it. One of the other great things about talking about ecosystems is that your stage crops can include chocolate, coffee, water, and I'll be talking about all of that today. Um, but we're starting off with this question, which was how ESPA was set up. As Giles said, the main program started in 2010, but actually... Um, started thinking about it in 2007, so it's, it's almost 10 years old. But this is what we we're trying to answer. How and when do ecosystem services contribute to poverty alleviation? And I want to use this opportunity to talk you through this, partly about what is ESPA, where it came from, then to think about, and what have we learnt um, over the period when we've looked at this quite intensely, and then to think, looking forward, and so what does that mean for the future? And what I'm going to do is, because this is a public lecture, I'm not going to, or try not to be too much into the technical details, the detail. I want to give you a nice storyline about why ESPA matters, why it matters to developing countries, but at the end, take a few minutes to think about, and why it matters beyond that, why it matters in this country, why it matters to all people. So that's really the outline. So where we're going to go, where ESPA came from. Actually, it was a response to the Millennium Ecosystem Assessment, which was published in 2005. So the thinking behind it is just over 10 years' um, time. It also came out of the Millennium Development Goals, 2000-2001. So where did it come from? Then, what can ESPA tell us about how ecosystem services for poverty alleviation? Here's the spoiler. The answer is ecosystem services poverty alleviation works, but. And it's the but which is the interesting thing. That's coming back to this answer of how, or the question of how and when do ecosystem services contribute to poverty alleviation. And as you'll see at the end, understanding that takes the results beyond just thinking of the developing, con developing country context to think at a global scale, which I think is quite neat. And then thinking about, and what comes next? What are the lessons? What are the emerging questions? And to think, just as ESPA came out of the um, Millennium Development Goals in 2000, last year the UN agreed on this new set of ambitious goals, the Sustainable Development Goals. I want to think about what can ESPA tell us which is relevant to the SDGs? And what do we need to do about it? And then I want to bring it back to a set of questions for you to think about as well. So let's go through some of the important things to set the scene. Definitions matter. 
in terms of something like ESPA. Now, we started with the Millennium Ecosystem Assessment, which has a definition, a useful one. An ecosystem is a dynamic complex of plants, animals, microorganisms, non-living environment interacting as a functional unit. We sort of understand that. This one can be contested by some people. This is what we've used in ESPA. Ecosystem services are the benefits of, that people obtain from ecosystems. The key thing there is people are, taking, are receiving these benefits. There's an active interaction. Um, and then coming from that is this point which is most contentious for some communities, is that by extension, people are integral parts of ecosystems. It's not a one or the other. Actually, I can only visited um, one ecosystem on Earth in my professional life where I could think that people have not really been a major part of that ecosystem. Um, it's 50,000 hectares in Supper and um, northern Borneo, which has really been isolated for a, it's a research site more than anything. But everywhere else I have been people have been really a functional, integral part of the ecosystem. And so often, we don't think that way. So, key things. People are part of the ecosystem. I wear this tie for these talks just to remind me that people are at the heart of what we're talking about. So, where did ESPA come from? You can go way back. You can go to the Brundtland Commission, our common future, the World Commission on Environment and Development, thinking about those relationships then the original Rio summit, um, Agenda 21, thinking about our relationship with the environment. Then more recently than that, the Millennium Ecosystem Assessment, which brought together this thinking, which influenced the links between ecosystem services and people, which we'll talk about in a bit. Half of this thing which became ESPA was looking at that. And then at the same time, or a similar time, the MDGs came along. A set of really ambitious goals, starting off reducing global poverty by 50%. Um, looking at education, maternal health. And ESPA, now look at it, what an ambitious target to bring together those really ambitious ideas of how do we protect the environment whilst also enhancing people's lives, looking at the needs of individuals? That's where ESPA came from. And it, is actually, it actually took a long time to design the programme because it was so ambitious. But what's pleasing now is after, um, or ten years after the, um, the Millennium Ecosystem Assessment and after five solid years of research, we're beginning to get some of these answers. So, this diagram many of you would have seen came from the Millennium Ecosystem Assessment, looking at the links between um, ecosystem services and the constituents of well-being. When I look at that, I say, actually, ESPA was designed to try to understand that mess of arrows in the middle. Um, what are those links? How do these links between ecosystem services and well-being work? And in the particular context of ESPA, and what does this mean for poor people in developing countries? Um, and we're beginning to get a much better understanding of that. And I'm going to use um, some of ESPA's examples to show just how that works. 
So this was a, a, a leaflet that we produced a few years ago which asked a question, what if fighting poverty and protecting the planet were one and the same thing? And at that time, the back page, it said, because they could be. Now, we're just replacing this. And one of the reasons is we got this wrong. After several years, I realised that that back page was wrong. Do you know which word's wrong? It is this one. I would say now that what we understand is there's no choice. It has to be something that we achieve. And that's the reason at the end of today's talk I'm going to bring this back why it also matters to everybody in this room. It's not something that we do for poor people in developing countries. Actually, understanding the links between ecosystem services and human well-being is important to all of us. And it's something we don't think about. So, let's tell you a bit about Esper's story. And I've used this slide a couple times. Um, in talks, and it illustrates um, one of the problems that we, we start off with Esper, is that scientists like me, particularly environmental scientists like me, are rubbish at communicating why complex environmental issues matter. So, let's not take ourselves too seriously. I'm going to illustrate this with three different types of environmental scientists, potentially. First one is Sheldon from Big Bang Theory. His line is, it's really complex and you're too dumb to understand. <coughs> have you heard an environmental scientist say that? I have. Right, next one, if you can ever remember Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, is Marvin the, an the paranoid android. His line is, here am I, the brain the size of a planet, and you still don't listen to me. And the last one is becoming topical because the film's about to come out, is Fraser from Dad's Army. His line is, we're doomed. And that's the problem. We are communicating a negative message about why the environment matters. The fact that I use the word complexity or complex turns people off. So what I want to do today is to, is to move from this negative, complex, you'll never understand message to one which is a far more engaging message of why these things matter and how we can use ecosystem services to enhance people's lives. So here's some numbers just to let you know a little bit of ESPA, and one of the things which this reminds me, we've had 105 projects, so I apologise, I'm not going to mention all 105. Over 900 researchers, again, I'm not going to mention it. This is, cool, it hasn't actually shown up completely right. Um, it's a huge programme. Um, I'll never get a chance to visit all the projects, meet all the researchers, but right at this point, I want to acknowledge that ESPA's results is built on this basis let's go and have a look at some of the examples of what it's produced. And this is about telling ESPA's story, describing how and when ecosystem services contribute to human well-being and poverty alleviation and why this matters to everybody. So often we think about development as something that we do for other people because it's the right thing to do for them or makes us feel a bit better, etc., my point is, this is you know, it's not an optional thing. This is something which really matters to everybody. And what we learn from ESPA is equally important here. So, let me illustrate some of the things which are coming out of ESPA. 
as I said, I'm just picking a few example projects which illustrate this. This is a project called Swahili Seas on the east coast of Kenya. And I was privileged to be in this community, um, this place called Ghazi Bay, when the woman on the left there, who's the head teacher of the school there, was taking money which had been gained from an ecosystem service project, this was locking up carbon, and that money had been invested in education, buying books for the schools. The kids were really excited. This is an example where ESPA's research informed action has helped establish an innovative carbon credit scheme. And it's a useful thing. I'll come back to it later. We've got a 20-year contract. 2014, they got $17,000. The communities, there are two communities here, decided to invest this in education. So this was that first part of that. Ecosystem services, locking up carbon, reforesting mangroves, enhancing fisheries, here is contributing to poverty alleviation. We've got some numbers. I want to come back to that at the end of talking about the ESPA research because there's another part of this is do we really understand how and why this is working and how do we take it from 2,400, 2,500 people to 250,000 people to a million people? That's one of the questions. That was one of our earlier projects, one which was funded... Um, a little bit later is a project called Assets and that works in Malawi, um, Colombia and Peru and it's looking at land use, land use transitions and these two images on the right um, are from um, the project sites in, in Malawi looking at a mosaic of, of land use over a landscape and some of the produce which comes from that and this is a market um, close to it so this project's looking at the impacts of when you convert land from forest to agriculture. And what they're coming up is saying, when we start thinking about this, you've got to look at a mosaic of land use. So much in the past, we looked at the agriculture part and ignored the fisheries. We look at things in isolation. But what comes out is systems, this mosaic of land uses, multiple services, understanding um, how that works. And what comes out of this work, which is really interesting, is that if you look at a pristine forest ecosystem, the level of services which come out, the human benefits which come from an untouched forest system, is relatively limited. When you look at that transition, there is a gradual increase in the amount of benefits which flow to people until you exceed what might be called the carrying capacity, um, and then things start to go wrong. So understanding how that works is a crucial question. So we can understand that you can enhance the benefits, but how do you find this optimum management of landscapes and ecosystems? To get this benefit from ecosystem services that it does reduce poverty, but doesn't go over the edge. So one of the communities they're working with has been really successful. Um, They've, got a, they've actually got three communities came together. They've got a cooperative, which is managing... Here we've got rice paddies. Um, and when you go in that community, it's so different from others in that same region in that you can actually sense that these people are definitely better off. 
So that was really interesting. But when I looked at it, I say, okay, but what is happening around this? So, for example, there's a lake next to it. What's happening to fisheries there? Where's the water coming from the irrigation scheme, which is essential for this? And that was some of the, imp- the really interesting things. So this is where the trade-offs becomes really important, between ecosystem services. So up on the top right, we've got that rice field. The morning that I took... Sorry, that was taken in the afternoon. That morning I was in a, in a, um, a market very close by, and I was talking to people in the market, and they said, actually, the fisheries in the lake nearby have absolutely crashed. A person, actually it was the Chancellor of the University, said when he was a kid, he would have fish several times a week. Now he, who is quite a well-off person, considers himself lucky if he can have fish once a week, and the fish are much smaller. So what's happening there? You've got one group of, of, of one community where they're getting more resource, but adjacent you've got a lake which is losing productivity, and they said there's problems with eutrophication, etc. Then on the left-hand side, you can see these bicycles at the end of the day, huge um, loads, that's charcoal there. Where is that timber coming from? Is it sustainable? And understanding this is recognising we can't just look at one part of the system without thinking about the interactions becomes really important. And I think the next slide sort of illustrates that, is that when you take this to the next step, is whilst it does, whilst changing land use or getting this mosaic can start to enhance the flow, if you go past what we call a tipping point, you can go too far. And the, the landscape starts to lose productivity. So again, we've got this image of this multiple land use landscape, but... Here's an interesting thing. This is another community that the same project's looking at it. They are living in a highly degraded system where it looks like exploitation of resources has gone too far. Number one, too many trees have been cut down. They're starting bottom right to lose the soil. And the water. Um, this This was their drinking water supply. And you can see that bucket there. The, uh, the girl who's collecting water said it was taking about 15 or 20 minutes to fill the bucket. And that is the only water supply that is functional. Ten years ago, they had much more. Now, what's the interesting thing? This location is in the headwaters of the water supply which is going down to that rice farming areas. And... The key thing here is that there's no connectivity. Even though you've got a a functional landscape which is actually connected in biophysical and actually social and economic senses, there's no thinking about if we are destroying one ecosystem by over-exploitation, how is this going to affect other people? How is it going to affect their livelihoods? And the thing about tipping points is when you get soil like this, it's very difficult to go back trying to restore a landscape, trying to restore a dysfunctional ecosystem is much more difficult, much more expensive, and takes a long time compared to avoiding getting to that point. 
And again, when I come to some of the lessons learned, I'll come back to that with, a, with an example from a different location, which is Ethiopia. So, oh, actually, I've got it here. So one of the big things which are coming out is this need to identify and avoid these horrible um, tipping points. Um, what do I mean by that? It's really where you've got a significant and potentially irreversible decline in ecosystem services when either exploitation or degradation environment has exceeded a point, the point of no return. Here's two examples. Up on this top right slide, um, I've got one of my team. It's, uh, it's Sam Moangi, who's uh, based in, in Kenya. And here we were visiting a, a project in Ethiopia, um, which was looking at degraded landscapes. Now, okay, it's, unless you're close to the front, you're about to see. Sam's about my height. He's standing like this. Okay, there. And you've got this interesting landscape. Now, that's not an interesting landscape. Sam is standing there showing how much soil has been lost. This is, was, a productive agricultural system. Now, if you have got any sort of uh, environmental and agricultural background, soil is the source of life. Okay? And this project, look at it. That is potential productivity which has been lost. That is when you exceed that. And one of the things that the, the project there was looking at was how do you restore a degraded landscape like that? What I would say from, from our thing is... Is that the right question? Shouldn't we be saying, is it better to avoid this situation or to try to restore it? And that's, that's one of the key questions we'll come, down, come to. So that was an environment where I knew there was going to be a problem. Um, here is, I think, probably the only example I've got from, uh, from South America. Oh, it's one of the examples I've got from South America. Um, and here I was taken by the Assets Project. They have a, a group of, of different sites which represent this continuum going from pristine environment, partly degraded or partly converted, to more degraded ecosystems. And I was taken to this location in Colombia as an example of a pristine ecosystem which was under no pressures at all. And there I did as I like doing, I went into a market and started talking to local people. I met this gentleman here who has got um, a major food fish from the um, Amazon, from memory, that's Piracu. And, you know, it's a nice big fish. So I was talking to him, I said, that fish looks smaller than I'm used to. And he said, yep, yeah, no, ten years ago they were double the size. But we just can't get big fish anymore. So I went to our researchers and I said, but you told me that this was an environment where there are no pressures, but you've actually got a warning sign here. Later that day, we went to the fisheries um, a research institution and I was talking about this thing called tipping points. And the researcher said, oh, that's fascinating. Pulled a book off his bookshelf, opened it and showed me a graph of fish production from the local market. And he said, oh, so we've got this one which goes like that. That fish is no longer available in the river. It's gone from, from commercial things. So what's interesting here is that there are early warning signs of when an ecosystem 
goes under pressure. And one of the projects I'm not talking about today is one which is um, based in China, has actually looked at this, and we can see early warning signs of ecosystems getting under pressure, of loss of services. And one of the key questions which comes out of that is, where is the limit? When should we act? Do you act when your fish gets to that size, or do you wait until they've disappeared? When is the right time to act? And, you know, that is one of the big questions which we'll come back to. So, so you know, we know this is a problem. We don't know where the limits are in most cases until they happen. And when should we act? Should we wait until we just get to the precipice? Or should we be precautionary and go earlier? I don't have an answer. But that's why we do research. So that's one of a couple of projects illustrating a few key points. So I want to move to a different type of project. That was looking at mainly what we'd call provisioning services, so food, um, water to some degree, something completely different. One of the other things which is often mentioned within our environment is um, looking at conservation payments, for example. And we've got a project um, which is called Esper Pages, or P4GS, based in Madagascar, and this is, one of, this is one of the projects that I love to visit. It's, Giles said that one of the things which characterises ESPA is highly interdisciplinary projects. This is one of the best exemplars of it. It's looking at how do conservation, payment, how do conservation payments work for poor people. But it's just got this amazing mix of researchers, um, disciplines. So in some cases we could be looking at some of the biodiversity top Left corner is a gorgeous lemur, which is the largest lemur, which is called the Inderi. Um, and they've got this amazing call. Um, but, so we're looking at that biodiversity, also chameleons, frogs, butterflies, ex- moths, etc. Some amazing data. Then looking at below-ground below activities. So these guys are doing horrifically hard work digging soil pits. I went to the field and tried to dig a soil pit. Now I understand why so few people do soil science. It's hard work. Then up on the top right of there, we've got some amazing social science. So I went in to visit a a community there, and we were discussing about how good or bad did they find the local national park. And it was a really interesting discussion. And they said, we can't actually decide whether... This national park is good for us or bad for us. Some people get some employment, some don't, we feel excluded. They couldn't do it. So they're saying, is this actually good? And then we've got this landscape here, which has got agriculture. So the big question is, is this working or not? So we've got this whole group of projects looking at protected areas and poverty alleviation. Um, Madagascar is an interesting one, also links to big business because, of course, some of the main payments for conservation services are coming from the mining sector. Um, so question here, can local people actually benefit for these global payments for ecosystem services? 
Um, this project's working really closely with really good researchers, NGOs, but also working with major development partners. Um, the World Bank has got a project there, Conservation International, both of those are linking them there. And here, this is the big question. Yeah, there's money flowing, but how, what is, where's the equity? Are poor people actually benefiting? Now, last week, this project published a paper, picked up on the BBC well, um, website. BBC, well, like many news media, they didn't quite get it right. It's not a climate compensation scheme. It's actually a payment for, for conservation, but they're saying it's failing to reach the poorest. And that's what's coming out of this project, is it's difficult to get the benefits down to the poorest members of society. And that has been a really consistent message across the whole ESPA thing. Yeah, ESPA works, but it's difficult. And poor people are probably less likely to benefit than others in the first instance, unless you try something um, special. So the next question is, who has access to resources? If you don't have a resource, how can you, if you don't have access to a forest or to a patch of forestry, it's a bit difficult to get those benefits. Who influences the decisions about land use and distribution of benefits? That community in Madagascar said, we have very little voice in what happens in the national park. We have very little voice in decisions which are important to us. And the key thing which comes out of this thing is when we're talking about these equitable distribution of benefits, institutions, governance is really important because that influences how decisions are made, this distribution side. So when I come back to the end, I'm going to pull all of these together to some of the key points which are emerging. But this challenge about distribution is one of the big aspects which come out of the research, and we still need to understand is how, you know, what is equity even? It's, it's a contested term. Somebody's definition of equity will be differ, different from others. But um, we need to understand that. So what I said there was that effective institutions, governance, and markets are, are important. I'm going to illustrate that. Remember, here's our head teacher. She was benefiting from income coming from a payment for carbon um, project. What had to happen for that to be possible? It wasn't just planting or replanting the mangroves. They had to establish their own community-based organisation that could organise the group. Now, it was quite convenient. They did it around the school, but they had to get a a way of accessing this global market for carbon. In the absence of that, it wouldn't have happened. So we understand now that this institutional side, effective markets are really important. But what's the right type? I visited a community in, uh, in Nepal and we were talking about institutions and it turned out every, every new development project coming into the community set up a new community management group and they were making decisions which were conflicting. And I asked the logical question. He said, have you thought about um, having one group making all of these decisions? I said, yeah, but the donors don't like it. And I think we need to take a step back and say, what do we need to do to enable these um, links to work? 
There may be a need to develop new markets, e.g. carbon conservation. In cases, all we need to do is enhance access to existing markets. What works? What links into this previous concept of equity? Um, that didn't come out very well. I'm going to use this. So this. This gives me the opportunity to start thinking about um, this. That we've got a project working in Ghana and Ethiopia, which is called EcoLimits. And they're looking at another land use transition project, but it's really interesting. On the left-hand side, we've got um, the example from Ghana, which is looking at the production of this, which is my, which is my, um, my chocolate for the day. And that project's really interesting because the, the production there is producing very high-quality um, um, cocoa beans, um, really intensely linked into local communities. I didn't realise it, but they, they actually take the, the beans, open them up, they ferment it for a week, um, which enhances the flavour. It's been really good, but as the economy has developed in Ghana, it's become much more difficult to get the labour to do that. Also, um, the land available for that has declined. And the problem now is that lack of land, lack of labour is meaning that the production of these high-quality beans is likely to reduce. Now, that's important for local people, but also think about um, global situation. The demand for high-quality chocolate is going up. Um, I think that's talking about something like a 1% to 2% decline, potentially, in production each year over the coming decade or so. How's that going to match up? And... Who's benefiting? Again, there's all sorts of questions here. This is land use transition, sustainability, etc. On the right-hand side um, is the other half of this project, which is looking at coffee production in Ethiopia. Um, High-quality production, shade-grown coffee. Um, real, if, you're, if you're into coffee, it's really nice stuff. But, um, again... Uh, what about sustainability? The location where this photo was taken is sitting on top of a new coal mine. Who's going to, to you know, what's going to be the effect of that? Um, the benefits that are not really accessing global markets now, so one part of the reasons for that is the role of, of effective institutions. So these types of projects start to say, so how do we get this sustainable production, which is benefiting both the local communities, but also feeding into this global economy? These are major commodities. Um, what's, you know, what does the future hold? So that's the next point. So I'm going to come back to, to land use change. Um, and... We've got lots of examples. I talked about the examples about transition from forest to agriculture. Um, we have a project which, is, which has got a really long acronym or long name. It's the Dynamic Drivers of Diseases African Consortium, known as DDAC. And that's looking at um, zoonotic diseases, diseases which are shared between animals and humans. And... There's some really amazing research coming out of that, but I want to focus on one of the things which I didn't really expect to come out so strongly is just how much land use change is 
influencing disease dynamics. So this is a location in, um, in Ghana, going into a small community, quite typical. You've got, um, you've got this, this small stall there, a woman selling vegetables from the agriculture, large shade tree um, above her, um, food there. Now, here's the next thing. This little guy, he's cute, isn't he? He's a fruit bat. West Africa, fruit bats, disease, Ebola. Now, Ghana hasn't had Ebola, but the research has shown that a good proportion of the fruit bats sitting in these trees are carrying antibodies for various zoonotic diseases. Um, Actually, one of these species is showing antibodies for Ebola. Interesting question is why have there been no transition? Why, Why is the bat alive? But also, beneath the tree, which is nice for shade, you've got things like this. School kids playing table tennis. What's the link to land use change? The link to land use change is, as agriculture has expanded, farmers have cut down all the fruit trees, and the bats have moved into into the towns. So land use change has enhanced the interactions between animals potentially carrying diseases. There are other diseases which are transmitted in Ghana. Uh, what is it? Hanepavirus is one of them. Um, but the land use change is definitely changing these dynamics. Um, and it's much more complex than you expect. I didn't think that you could go under, you know, if you go to that table tennis mat and just look up, just this, this sea of little faces looking down at you, and you suddenly realise, actually... Do I really want to be exposing myself to a potential disease? Um, and you know, there's an example. So how do you how do you try to get better land use? Right, coming to the end of some of the key lessons here. One of the problems that we've got in a research community is it's really easy to come up with single examples. So we've got the example from um, Kenya, that one community. How do we make the business case? How do we extend this? And I'm going to give two examples of this. Top right is Bangladesh. We've got a large project there working in the, in the Delta region. This picture was taken on one of the major rivers uh, in the Sundarbans. Um, and the communities there are telling a story of, of change, but also the story of their desire, their need to have a different future. And one of the problems that they've had is a series of large cyclones, um, storms, flooding, loss of food. And they want to know, what should we do? And my question is, So when do you use ecosystem services as a way out of poverty as opposed to say, okay, if your problem is flooding, let's get a a piece of concrete to stop the flooding? What is the right choice? And one of the interesting things is that there's a part of that project, of the Delta's project working in India, which has shown that in the past, bad engineering decisions, the wrong location for, for example, a flood defence, has had really unexpected outcomes including removing 
an island from a delta region completely. And I think there was something like 50 families no longer had somewhere to live. So how do you make the decision? When do we use concrete? When do we use what we call built infrastructure compared to natural infrastructure? How do we make a case that argues that? Because when it comes to, say, decision makers, ministry planning, they say, yeah, but I understand concrete. I don't understand trees. So we need to help them that. But also, how do we scale up from small-scale um, research examples or small-scale examples, that's where he sees. Bottom, bottom right is a picture from Nepal. This is also a scaling-up issue. Here is a reasonable example where this is a water source during a rainstorm um, which feeds into a, a township called Duakau. And they want to expand that and it's not quite working at the moment. They need more water. How's it going to come? What's the payment going to be? And that was also the place which had these conflicting decisions in the community because some of the money which was coming in to be paid for water was being used to provide stones for um, construction. And I think that's one of the reasons why the water was definitely not clean when I was there. How do you make these decisions? How do you make these trade-offs? So it's about providing the evidence for people to make better decisions. And we're beginning to get there, but these interactions are really important. So, um, we're beginning to get these results. You're beginning to get a taste for this, and I'll summarise some of these findings. But one of the things that I want is how and when can ESPA's research support better policy and management decisions? I'll go straight this in two places. Top right, back in Bangladesh, went across the river visited a community um, in the Sundarbans. And this was a, a, a group um, of community members. The women on the right-hand side, this was the most difficult meeting I've had in my um, years with Esper. The women on the right-hand side had all lost either a son or a husband to tigers. And the reason for that is that over two cyclones and various other um, events, their island had become non-productive. And not just for people, also for tigers. So the tigers were coming into the village, going after the goats, which were one of the only sources of protein left because there was not much fish left in the river. And the families tried to protect. You don't really get off too well when you have an argument with a tiger. And they said, what does your research tell us? What's the solution? And that was really difficult because there is no easy solution. Remember that thing about tipping points? When you go over the edge, it takes a long time. Um, that ecosystem, that island, is no longer able to produce the services essential for that community. Likewise, with Sam there in Ethiopia, um, the, the question which I was originally told is, how do we restore the... Um, uh, the landscape, and I'll give you a picture of what's been done at the moment. But my question is, is that the right question to be asking? Shouldn't we be saying, what is more efficient, trying to restore something which is degraded or preventing more land um, getting into that situation? Um, and that's, you know, this is a bit difficult in the light. What they've been doing is um, getting communities, 
in Ethiopia there's a certain number of days you have to work for the community a year. And they're just putting stones on this landscape. And the idea is it captures soil as it moves down, down that. But as somebody else said, all we're doing is having soil eroding at the top of the hill and then capturing it a little bit further down. Is that the right thing to be investing time and resources? Wouldn't it be better, maybe, to stop that in the first place? And how do we, how do, we do that? These are really difficult questions. And our research and other research like it needs to help people make better decisions. So, summary, and then I'm going to link this back to the rest of the world. So, there is a lot of evidence from ESPA and other projects that ecosystem service can reduce poverty, and as I said, but it's not automatic and it's not necessarily easy. That's a disappointment. At the beginning of this, we sort of hoped that by this stage of the programme we would have got this eureka moment to say, yeah, it's really easy. But then nothing in development's easy. Second point, this distributional aspect, it is difficult. It's not maybe, it is difficult for the poorest members of the community to, to benefit. There's a risk of what we call elite capture. Again, this is not something new that's come out of ESPA, but it's important to recognise this. We do have to, demit, to consider multiple dimensions of poverty and well-being. It's not just about income, about food, it's about water, it's about a whole range of things. Avoiding the tipping points is much easier than trying to fix it. Understanding these trade-offs, trade-offs between food and water, between different groups, about now and in the future. So, some key messages. Um, Remember at the start, I, get, I had those three, these three examples. It is difficult to convince people if everything we say is doom and gloom. I've given you some examples of where there's been really exciting progress about understanding the productive capacity, about understanding how you can make change. And you know, We've got examples from Kenya. Um, there are other examples which I haven't talked about, some of the work that's been done here, looking at um, land use in Bolivia is a great example. There are some great examples out there, but we need to be thinking about telling this message of why the environment matters, why it, why it matters to social economic development, both in developing countries and throughout the world. One of the interesting things we haven't really explored much is that if you start thinking about this, the environmental interventions, the environmental ways of doing it, not that different from other development um, approaches for education. You need, um, or for health, you need effective institutions. You need people to be trained, have a human capacity, the ability to do things. So environment is not that different, and we need to stop treating it as something which is separate. Um, so here's our lessons, or here's some of our lessons for poverty alleviation as a subset. Ecosystem services do alleviate poverty, but we need to find ways to enhance the sustainable flow from ecosystem services. There's no point building up this basis if slowly we're eroding the base. And we've got, a, as I mentioned earlier, we've got this project um, in China which has been looking at the flow of ecosystem services in the Yangtze Basin. And it correlates this huge increase in prosperity, income, etc., with a gradual loss of services. 
Um, and what you can see if you look at those data is about 20, 25 years ago there was a warning sign that the system was becoming unstable and now it is beginning to come home. And certainly there are a number of countries around the world where this concept of environmental refugees are becoming important. The environment can no longer support their lives, so they're migrating to cities or, um, well, often to cities. Bangladesh is another example where that's really important. We need to ensure equitable distribution of benefits, acknowledging that it's very difficult to agree what equity is. To understand these trade-offs between services, between people, between now and in the future. And we have to avoid going beyond the point of no return, these tipping points. To understand optimal land use and land use change, um, where is that, I don't think it's a single sweet spot, but where can we maximise this in a way that is, gives people benefits, is sustainable, um, but also maintains a functional um, natural system, um, which is giving benefits to a range of different stakeholders. Effective markets, governance and institutions, and I can't remember if I've got another one after that. Oh, and then of course, how do we go from single examples with 2,500 people to 250,000 and more? How do we scale out from one location to another one, to a different country. So I mentioned Swahili Seas, this is the one with the carbon example. There's a, there's a follow-on project to that which is asking exactly the question, how do we scale up? And what they've found out is they go to another community and some communities, it's just not going to work. It may be that they don't have effective leadership or they are not interested. I think at present they're saying about half of the communities that they visit don't seem to be able to, to pick this up. And then you say, okay, for the other half, what do they need to do? How are you going to get that? So understanding that is really important. And I think the last one is, and how do we make this business case for investing in natural capital or ecosystem service? In Bangladesh, for example, they are now talking about a thing called the Delta Plan, which is looking at how they manage these social and ecological systems, which are so important for so many hundreds of millions of people around the world. How do they understand, how do you fit natural services, ecosystem services, into that decision-making? By default, it's not used. People are reluctant to think, it's too risky, it's going to be too expensive, it's too slow. How can we change their thinking? And this is where evidence becomes important. Okay, so... I sort of come at the end to thinking about where this fits into um, to ecosystem, well, where we go beyond ESPA and going beyond the MDGs. I've mentioned the Sustainable Development Goals, and one of the big differences um, for me in terms of the SDGs is that universality. Universality means that the SDGs will apply to all countries, all people on Earth. And that's where I'm going to make... Um, a jump for me, which I don't usually do, um, is to say, so what does ESPA tell us in the UK in this case? So here I've got um, the example for cocoa, which is why I've got my chocolate with me. Um, Ghanaian chocolate, well, Ghanaian cocoa, major uh, international commodity. We eat a lot of it here. Um, 
So ESPA's research is relevant to um, developed countries. Have you ever thought about your relationship to ecosystem services? Have you ever thought, really, where this comes from? If you go to one of our partner organisations is World Resource Institute. They've got a, a website called Forest Watch, and they've got a really interesting data-led exploration which says how much carbon, how much forest, is in that bar of chocolate. Really interesting. Go and have a look. It's, it's interesting. So we import a lot of ecosystem services, um, but we don't actually think about it. Likewise, we also consume a lot of ecosystem services in our own countries. And bottom right is um, a pet sheep that I know. Her name's Bramble. And she's got, or where she lives, has got some really interesting stories, which is not that different from Esper. So um, I'm just going to illustrate this just to show you how Esper's research, Esper's results, are equally applicable here. Um, this is a location just south of Edinburgh where I stay, called Coburn's Path. And it's a landscape with mosaic. So you've got um, the sheep here. Behind it's a large field, which is actually one of the largest um, production areas of Brussels sprouts in the borders. Um, then behind that is a beach which is one of the east of Scotland's favourite surfing locations. So here we've got um, various types of agricultural production, tourism. Interesting thing, this production of Brussels sprouts produces waste, the peelings. And at present, there's a debate about the community. The processing plant wants to dispose of the sprout peelings at sea. What I haven't told you is that this is a large voluntary marine reserve, attracts a lot of tourists, divers, walkers to the region. How do you make that decision about whether or not to dump Brussels sprouts at sea? The debate's still out on that. But it goes further than that. It's a really interesting microcosm which is beginning to show that. How does a community there have a voice in the things which are important to them. If you go up from there, you see the east of Scotland's nuclear power plant, Torness. Um, now, right through the UK and around the world, there's a debate about energy futures. Now, interesting things. For example, the um, Torness got shut down, I think, a couple of years ago because the heat exchanger going out to sea, which is an important thing, has changed the environment such that they got this huge swarm of jellyfish which got sucked into the water intake. Likewise, there are different fish species around there. So there's interactions. We've got debate about energy sources. So there's also a large wind farm there. Now, like the UK, or like the rest of the UK, there's been a lot of rain in the borders talking to local farmers, they were complaining that uh, was it last week they believed that the presence of these turbines has changed the hydrology such that flooding was occurring downstream which closed some of the roads. It's altering the environment. How do we make better decisions about that? And then, um, as I said, this is a marine 
um, voluntary reserve. And this is the small township of St Abbs, um, where, it's, where tourism is an absolutely cru- crucial part of the local economy. And what's interesting here is um, the link into local institutions. Um, how do they influence these decisions? And at present, um, the big debate in this township is about the interactions, um, about the required infrastructure. The, um, they've lost the lifeboat and they're worried that tourists aren't going to come here. Now, what's interesting is that these types of issues, the debates that I have with, with local stakeholders here, are not that different from the debates that I would have in for example, Malawi or, or um, Madagascar. Local communities saying, we don't have a voice in decisions that matter to us. We don't understand the impact of one land use change on another. We don't know how to do this. And what's really interesting is saying, OK, so some of these emerging questions from ESPA are absolutely the same as what these communities are, are dealing with. So, remember this. So, some emerging questions which are coming out of this, and so I'm almost at the end, is how do ecosystem services contribute? And I've now changed it to sustainable development. We started off in ESPA, poverty alleviation, we're now in the world of the SDGs. So, number one question from this, which is coming out of ESPA, and which is where I think, well, at least where my thinking is going, is how do ecosystem services contribute to sustainable development? Recognising this concept of universality. What mosaic of land uses are likely to maximise, if that's possible, the sustainable production of multiple ecosystem services from landscapes? How do we get more equity into the system? Understanding what needs to happen to enable this. But at the same time, recognising that there are limits, both ecological, social, economic, in any system which is linking that. Understanding where those limits are, when to act. And then finally, when does investing in ecosystem services make sense? Right. Okay, here's the questions for you. Have you ever sat down and thought how ecosystem services are important to you? It's not just the cocoa. You thought where your water comes from, where your food comes from, the impacts of that. I've used the example of the carbon footprint of of cocoa. Have you ever sat down and done a, a food balance for the day and asked where has everything come from? Where are these trade offs? Are they produced and consumed sustainably? Have you thought about trade-offs and tipping points? Are the benefits that you are enjoying today, are they being, you know, where is the equity in that? We talk about this as, you know, I've got a bar of free trade chocolate. Is that actually equitable trade? I don't know. And where do the ecosystem services fit into the SDGs? Interesting questions. When I started ESPA the first time, we, we had the researchers, and I, I gave them the task of saying, telling me something along this. 
what would be the narrative I'd give to a, a UK minister about why ecosystem services are important to everybody? We have, we're starting to get that, but as individuals, do we really ask that question? So, I want to finish off just to reiterate, you know, ESPA is um, supported by DFID, NERC and ESRC, but most importantly by actually over a 1,000 people from, was it, 52-plus countries around the world. And I've given you a taster um, of some of the results that are coming. But most importantly, yeah, ecosystem services for the alleviation works, but it's difficult. And most importantly, it matters to all of us. So I'll finish with this. Just to remind you, this is really important, but we need to find some of those questions or some of these answers. Um, and you, as an individual, I hope that you've been challenged a bit by some of the things that I've done. And um, now the, the slides will be up on the website. At some point, go back to those questions for you. Do it for a day. Think about it. I was with the RCUK um, office head in India once, and she said, we've been talking about ecosystem services all morning. And she said, right, Paul, taking you out of the office, I'm going to take you to Old Delhi, and you'll forget about eco- ecosystem services. And I burst out laughing. And Alicia said, why? I said, I'm going to walk you around Old Delhi, and every time I see an ecosystem service, I'm going to point it out to you. After five minutes, she said, be quiet, you've made your point. <laughs> Do it in London, it's interesting. You think, there are no ecosystem services in London. Rubbish. We just don't notice it. So, with that, I'll finish and uh, open up to questions. Well, thank you very much for a fascinating overview of uh, ESPA, and I'll never look at a Brussels sprout in the same, same way. Um, Paul has some questions for us, but hopefully we have some, uh, some questions for, for Paul as, uh, as well. So maybe we could take a couple of questions uh, at, a, at a time. So um, who would like to ask a, ask a question? Um, and if you ask a question, could you please, if you can, please tell us um, uh, your name and, and, and where you're from too. So we have a, a couple of questions. Uh, uh, five rows back. Right? <coughs> Hello, uh, Simone Buratti, uh, MPA alumnus 2012. Um, I agree that we need effective markets, governance, and institutions, but what would they look like? Do we have any example of an effective market, uh, institutional governance that can actually fit this picture? Thank you. Okay, thank you. Perhaps we could have one more over there. Um, I'm... Oh, I have a cold. Um, I'm Clara Gallagher from SOAS. I'm doing my master's in environmental economics. Um, the, when you're talking quite a bit about the Swahili Seas program, was that to do with like red carbon credits or something, or the red program? Where generally on that you're paid by ton of carbon that's kept in the ground, but payments for ecosystem services tend to be for something a bit more tangible, like digging a ditch or planting a tree to make it really basic. But um, how how can you reconcile those two very different forms of payment with that, without it becoming impractical? <laughs> Thanks. Okay, Paul. Okay, right. First question is much easier to answer than the second. Um, well, actually, it's not. The, we're beginning to get an understanding of um, some examples of when institutions work. I would say, for example... Um, 
I would quite like to see multifunctional institutions which allow um, um, will help groups to make these trade-off decisions. Do I do one thing or another? Um, but we're not quite sure at the moment. And, and one of the things that we are doing at the well, the program is about to do is to launch a, a synthesis call, um, trying to look across all of our research and um, uh, also related research. And one of the questions I would really like answered is somebody to do a critical analysis of exactly that question. I think, I think that's really, really um, crucial. We know it's this whole thing about how do you go from an individual example where it works to something which is more generically applicable. I don't have the answer for that, but I think there's sufficient examples out there to say, um, you know, here are some of the pointers about what works. Um, you know, what level? Do you take an existing institution and empower it? Do you need bring new things? I don't know the answers yet, but we need to understand that because we're not going to get this large-scale process. Um, so I would hope that sort of in you know, 12 months, 18 months' time, somebody would have taken up that challenge. And uh, if people here are interested in t taking up that challenge, watch our website because there is a call coming up sometime in the next one to two months looking for exciting new researchers to join us and, and ask those types of questions. Go for it. Um, red pairs... Uh, this is a, this is a this is an interesting one. Um, there's a lot of there's actually a lot of um, different definitions, for example, about what is a payment for ecosystem service. Is red a payment for ecosystem service, or is it not? And I think the problem I've got at the moment is that there seems to be so many different ways of defining this um, that it makes it difficult to. Um, to make generalisations. The, the project I mentioned in, in, in Kenya, um, it was a pay, it's, it's, is a payment for replanting, so it's, it's getting the trees, the trees back there. Um, so it is, a carbon, it is a carbon scheme, and some of the additional ecosystem services, such as enhanced fisheries, coastal protection, etc., are added benefits, but the payment is triggered on the basis of the, of the trees being there. But I'll take it to another step, is, are, is everything that is called a payment for ecosystem service actually that? So that example I used from um, Nepal, it was, pre it was presented as a payment for ecosystem service, except for, is it? Because there is no conditionality. The quality of the water, the volume of water, that didn't trigger payment. Um, so I think... Um, we've got to a situation where we need to actually take a step back and say, has, you know, are we actually getting confused by multiple definitions or, or is, are people hiding behind this because it's, you know, it's the fad? Um, so I would really like... One of the other things I'd love to know is, is when is a payment for ecosystem service effective in terms of benefiting both environment and people? I, think, I can think of examples of where it does one very well, but not the other as well, particularly because of these distributional aspects. So what does a really good payment for ecosystem service scheme... It's like, what's a generic example for what works for institutions? I'd love to know. 
what works for environment and people for a payment for ecosystem service. Um, again, we've got isolated examples, but not a good generic understanding. Okay, maybe we can take two or three questions uh, this time around. So a hand, there was a hand down here from before that I saw. Maybe we could take a couple towards the, the back. Uh, my name is Ganga. I'm doing my PhD in environmental economics at LSE. Um, I had a question about mitigating the trade-offs within the land use system. How does ESPA design that into the PES? Is there other examples of cases where you've designed some of those trade-offs or mitigated that? Um, and the second thing is, is the payment conditional on things like investing in, say, schools? Um, and the last thing was maybe you could feed the Brussels sprouts to the sheep, and that's one way of mitigating the trade-offs in that system. Okay, so there was a, there was a question over here, and uh, maybe we can have the microphone over. Um, I'm Benny Dembitzer, and I run a little organization that provides distance advisory services to farmers <coughs> in Malawi, Uganda, Kenya, Ethiopia. Mm-hmm. It seems to me that the work that you're doing is academically very interesting, but it will never be applicable, or rather applied, in any of these countries until the problem of land tenure, land planning, will be addressed. Now, there was a bloke called Joe Stiglitz who said, um, if you remember in his uh, book on globalization, it's discontent, that the West never emphasized the need for land ownership and clear land applications because it would have alienated the local elites. So, sorry, sorry to interrupt. So you have a question about land, land tenure? Because yes. we have some other um, people who would like to ask some questions. So, but thank you for that. Uh, that's clearly an important issue. Um, a question in the, 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 the middle here. Um, you, you stand, yeah, if you pass it along to... Thank you. Um, I'm Raffaella Bellanca, um, independent uh, energy consultant. Uh, my interest in uh, ecosystem services comes from the wood value chain uh, because wood and charcoal are uh, used to cook, um, and so that's the energy link to it. Um, I'm just back from three years in the field, and I brought with me a couple of observations that I would like to hear your opinion about. Um, one is the link between uh, um, with uh, population growth. So um, all we do is much better to stop degradation than uh, trying and restoring. Mm. Problem is that degradation happens because there are increasing pressure on the available land, and this is due to population, even if local communities um, oftentimes do not see that. Um, the other point... Uh, um, is, uh, uh, is related uh, with uh, public-private, uh, uh, um, the relation between the two. So w- donors generally come from uh, solid, uh, dirty capitalist uh, societies, but the moment we get on the planes, we all become socialists, and we work with communities. And this means that I've seen so many reforestation projects uh, failing the moment the project ends, because then you um, run in this uh, uh, tragedy, tragedy of the commons, problems, uh, nobody is owner, 
uh, everybody but nobody, and so the project failed. Mm. Does your research look at these two aspects? Uh, Post-scriptum, um, <coughs> to me, the, the, the turbines, the wind turbines, and their effect on the flooding looks like a bit doubtful, <laughs> a bit superstitious, but... Uh <laughs> okay, Paul, maybe if you could deal with those yeah. questions, we can have one a yep. final round. Okay, so... Um, Okay, well, starting off with the um, sort of the mitigating trade-offs and looking at investments, I don't think I don't think it's a matter of, of mitigating the trade-offs. It's more it's more starting with understanding what those trade-offs are, and um, the the important thing is understanding that in many cases there will be winners and losers, and. Um, also understanding that there are power differentials between different groups um, that really influence um, this decision. You know, this is a come back, coming back to the, to the equity things. Trade-offs are, are unavoidable in most cases. We, we used to always look for that um, sweet spot of win-win. Now we've got a we've got an ESPA paper which looked at you know what is the real you know how real are win-win solutions and the answer is if you look widely enough it's very very rare that everybody will win um, or that you can do that so understanding what those trade-offs are how what the rules of the game are who's winning who's losing etc is is really important and um, you know. As a research program, we are, you know, our, one of our main things is understanding that and making that understanding available and trying to, um, to, um, to link that into the, the types of decisions and investments that people make. Um, and um, I don't know if the sheep like Brussels sprouts. <laughs> Um, it's not good for them is the problem if you eat too much. But, um, but it's, an, you know, it's an illustration um, that one decision will impact other groups. Um, and you know, as a diver, I wouldn't like to be going into a marine protected area and see a pile of, of Brussels sprout leaves at the bottom. It's not quite what I expect. I expect to see wolffish there. Um, the thing about... About land tenure and planning, I completely agree, and it's really interesting. In a Giles mentioned Darwin Initiative, which I'm not, I'm no longer directly involved in, but um, they had a few projects looking at marine protected areas, and what was really interesting was that they were beginning to get results which suggested that marine protected areas were more successful in the Pacific than in other areas, and one of the reasons there is that. Um, land ownership in, on Pacific Islands is much better defined. Communities own land and resources. And when you own land and resources, um, you have more, more incentive to behave in a certain way. I was, uh, I did my, well, I was brought up and um, did my original work in New Zealand, and exactly the same type of results were happening in agriculture there as if we compared... Um, land management from, peop- from farmers who own the land compared to people who had a 100-year lease. Um, farmers who owned land tended to be more sustainable. Um, so, and the point about land planning is that, uh, certainly from a development community, I think we've forgotten how to do it. Um, 
And I come from that. I come from a background where this was really important for me. We just don't do it. And when I talk about this mosaic, that is implicit in that. And I think that's the thing which we um, need to do. Last point about um, well, the main thing there is uh, was I'd say pick up is about the example about wood, charcoal, and population growth. It's a really it's a it's a hugely important question, but I'll, I'll illustrate it with, with a, an observation. We've got a lot of projects in East Africa. And even if you were to get, um, if you look at some of the drivers for historical high population growth in the region, irrespective of, of what happens from this point on, over the next 20 years there's going to be a doubling of population minimum in that region. That's embedded. It's not going to go away. And hence, um, when I look at some of the regions there and I look at food production, water consumption, scary water there, and that you've got countries where they might be already using something like 70% of um, available water. For those of you, can you remember a few years ago there was a huge debate in the UK about the carbon footprint of roses for Valentine's Day? <laughs> remember that? Trouble is the media got the wrong story. The carbon footprint is nothing compared to the embedded water that you consume from your flowers that you're importing, from the... Um, the beans that you're importing, is, as an example, is that we need to be thinking. So that was my challenge to you. Look at what you are eating and consuming over the next week and think about those ecosystem services and when they came to you. It's a scary thing the first time you do it. It's quite an educational thing as well. Okay, so maybe we have a, a time for a couple more uh, questions. Um, so one just, just behind you, I see a hand, and also at the, at the back. Hi, thank you very much. My name is Bilal, and I'm an entrepreneur, plus I'm a MSc business student. Uh, we talk about ecosystem deterioration, and um, we had a point where is the limit and when to act. The fact that uh, we noticed that deterioration was traced, most of the deterioration was traced in developing countries, where we have a massive influence of uh, global corporations. Mm -hmm. uh, I would like to ask, uh, what, what could be done to limit the impacts of global cooperation on ecosystem deterioration? Thank you very much. Hi. Uh, Chris Baldock from TrueCost. Um, I just wanted to ask for some examples of how you've worked with private sector companies, um, just some examples, uh, some challenges, and, and how they benefit from working with you. Mm -hmm. Okay, thank, thank you. Cool. Okay, um, actually, a nice link between the two of those. Um, sort of ecosystem deterioration and sort of well, you're talking about global corporations. I, I actually say. One of, the, one of the pieces of research I've, I've often said would be lovely to see and understand is what the global flow of ecosystem services are um, and how that's changed over time. Um, what countries are 
large net exporters, what countries are large net importers, and what is the role of the private sector, governments, etc., in that. And um, it's one of these other things. I don't know. I really don't know. I've got, a, I've got a, a pretty strong feeling for what it looks like, but I'd like to, have, I'd like to know what those answers are. And um, I think you know, it's, it links nicely to that private sector thing. Um, there are no black and white rules. You know, there are good companies. There are bad companies. There are good large corporations. There are bad corporations. And I'd like to... And likewise, there are good governments, bad governments, good NGOs, bad NGOs, good researchers, etc. You get the picture. What I'd like to know is what defines, and they're all institutions, by the way, right? What defines an effective institution which is engaged? Um, and you know, when we talk, well, the, you know, for the last five, ten years, actually, we were talking about land grab. When you think about that question to you, when you're thinking about consuming your ecosystem service, is it land grab or is it ecosystem service grab? It's actually land which has water and has the ability to produce. The, the corporations are not stupid. They're not, they don't buy up land which is not going to be productive. They can predict better than most of the governments can where those, where those are. So um, it comes down to this who makes decisions, who's benefiting, etc., and I think that is the that is that. So I'm not going to say that that companies, large or small, are good or bad. They vary. Um, but understanding the flow, who makes decisions, who benefits, is is really important. In terms of of how have we worked with with private sector companies, um, not as much as I'd like actually. Um, but it depends on what you call private sector. Let's not forget that. Um, all far, well, virtually all farmers <laughs> in um, the continent of Africa, for example, are small f- businesses. You know, they're very small businesses. It's usually a family side. But I think people are thinking at, at the larger scale. It's interesting. Um, you find a growing number of private sector institutions, large and small, beginning to understand that this is important. Um, you've got things such as uh, ecosystem accounting um, coming in or ecosystem service accounting. And um, there are a number of, of companies which are beginning to see that this goes beyond the concept of um, corporate social responsibility to being central um, to their business activity. So, for example... Um, I used the I, used, I talked about two of the supply chains um, in the in the um, work on coffee and cocoa. Um, all of the major companies which are dealing with that commodity are getting dead serious about understanding how these um, concepts are affecting their supply chain. They now understand that this is way way beyond being socially responsible. It's affecting their future. Um, product um, productivity. I talked to other companies which are realising that um, you know they're running out of water. What do we do about it? Um, you see good examples, see bad examples. Um, so 
I think moving forward is really about engaging these groups into the debate, getting them to see that this is, it's in their interest to be talking about this. Um, and the, um, uh, you know, how you do this, do you pick the companies which are most progressive and work with them closely, or do you take, or you try to help the ones which are laggards and haven't really picked this up? I think you actually use a combination of both. Um, find some examples where it works, where you get you know, private sector leaders to articulate why it matters to them and to try to help them convince others. Same way that we do with farming communities, is you find you know, farmers who are innovative and get them to share their experience of why it matters and, and you know, what the progress can be. Thank you. Um, well, we need to draw the lecture to a, to a close now, so it just uh, leaves it for me to say I have some of that chocolate now, uh, please. <laughs> me um, too. <laughs> but no, just to, uh, to say uh, thank you very much uh, for coming and uh, joining us uh, this, uh, uh, this, this evening. Uh, Paul, thank you very much. You've literally given us food for, uh, for, for four. <laughs> <laughs> um, thank you.